Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com As I got to the, the slip cordon, everyone's just gone, you are what? And I turn around and I say, he's not giving him out. He's not giving him out. I, it was such a disbelief. You're listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with me, Will Rowe. These are the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. In this podcast, Alan Donald relives his second tour to England in 1998. But before that, we chat about the backdrop to his sporting career. During the 80s and early 90s, as Alan makes his way as a professional cricketer, politics and sport come head to head. Nations boycott South Africa over the political system of apartheid. But there were tours to the country, as cricket teams would controversially defy their governing bodies with rebel sides. The last of these came in 1990, an unofficial England team led by Mike Gatting. So, could you divide sport and politics? Not at that stage, no. No, it was always going to be, and um, and I just felt that, you know, back then you had the 64 guys or 66, um, or the, the, the Graham Pollock only played six test matches. Uh, same with Mike Proctor, um, they played over here in England before before they finally got that's enough. Um, but yeah, it was it was uh, very much, you could feel that you could feel that uh, the the politics was was way too much and the pressure became way too much. And, and I mean, if you go back a few years before when when Gatting's team came out to South Africa, that is the most scared I, I got. Uh, because that tour for me was never ever should have taken place um, it was again it was uh, an England team that got asked to come over and uh, the timing was hopelessly wrong were you physically um, scared I, yeah because we we were refused 
we were they didn't serve us in hotels um the the point was absolutely made in our faces that this this is no longer going to happen and mike gatting walked out i i believed it was in peter maritzburg and he walked out to see this group of people and someone threw something from the crowad and uh, hit luckily hit a security guard and a security guy next to him. I mean I actually felt more frightened for him because what are they going to do you know is that these people are they you know they wanted to obviously hand it over uh, hand over a memorandum to say what you're doing is wrong yeah and it was wrong and and gatting's team couldn't play cricket I think they just their one eye was what's what's happening outside of the ground and and they they just couldn't couldn't focus but the tour should never should never have happened it was just not not um in my book um i found that was wrong making the, r- the wrong statement politics was in our faces and we grew up with that now as we go into this uh, uh the more uh, you know we, we became closer as a nation yeah and there's no doubt that was what was happening the people at home were starved of international sport and now they want to succeed be be associated and being proud of a team that's winning you know whether it's the springboks or whether it's the proteas playing, playing playing cricket or any other sport for that matter but or football so but now um we 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 starting to produce the goods and we 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 starting to you know that's there was the start of the 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 rainbow nation that everyone talks about So yeah 94 is you've gone from what you just described the, the the bad side of the politics and sports being intertwined but then you you come to 1994 and and you have the new South Africa and then suddenly you see the power of sport and the good that it can do uh and it kind of struck me uh, reading your autobiography White Lightning um doing this podcast series I've read various um, cricketing autobiographies um most people have a forward from a legend of the game a, a former player You have a forward from one of the greatest statesmen that's ever walked this planet, um Nelson Mandela. That's quite special. Yeah. <laughs> well, um when we played India uh in our first series at home, um we met uh, Mr. Mandela um at the Wanderers and he came and shook our hands uh at lunchtime and we all lined up the England uh, sorry the Indian guys were all lined up next to us and he got to me uh and he only and all he could say was ah oh, mr donald how is the free state and i thought you're not supposed to know where i live you know you know um, but, but you are mr mandela you, you are you seriously kidding me i mean i said no the free state is this fantastic uh, mr president it was really he said uh because the anc that's where their base is anyway but yeah. also he knew about us he knew what was happening he knew what was hansi cronier what his role was he knew what my role was and and he just said listen um good luck in the second innings um we'll we'll be watching you know that you know and for us to have gone to him to write the forward for for that book was um as only i knew he could um and and he did that he gladly gladly did that um and i've got a copy at home where he personally signed that book so it was uh, you know it was a he was an unbelievable man um you know just uh, in the just his calmness and his uh, the 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 way he kept a nation so close and so inspired all the time you know it was a uh, uh yeah I'm, look to to have him do that for me uh, was uh, incredible really incredible 
1998, South Africa are back in England. Most of us remember Donald v Atherton that summer. We'll come on to that. But the first test of the series ends in a rain-affected draw at Edgbaston. South Africa a little lucky as England were in a strong position. It's Lords next and, as in 1994, Alan enjoys success at the home of cricket. He takes five for 32, thanks in some part to a questionable tactic from Dean Headley. Uh, I, um, I had a, a shocking uh, first test at Edgebaston. Um, and the warm-up game against Worcester, I felt I never felt in better rhythm. And then you go into the first test and deliver that. You know, it was it was it wasn't good. It really wasn't good. And um, having to work in between two tests, having to get myself ready and confident again, and and got in that second that third test match, and I felt so much better. I felt really, really, you know, good. Um, it just needed Dean Headley to fire me up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> You know, and the rest of the slip cord and shouting, give it to him, give it to him. You know, so it was. Um, that's all I needed. And uh, remember, got out, ran upstairs. I couldn't have put my bowling boots on quicker. Um, I was so revved up, and there was a great crowd in that that late evening. Um, and I think it was James. Um, he sort of fended one high off his armpit, and 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 Mark Boucher was that. That was his debut tour took a great catch. Big shout, and he's gone as well. Steve James joins Atherton on the long walk back to the pavilion. South Africa make early inroads once again. And Steve James' first test innings is over. Gloved down the leg side. That's a great effort by Mark Boucher. Down the leg side, full stretch. And doesn't Alan Donald enjoy that? And that was us off, you know, and you couldn't have asked for him, Dean Headley, to come in at night watching either because they were two down in no, tr- in no time. And uh, so... Why did he uh, pick on you? <laughs> well, he, he kept on bowling bumpers and, and I sort of fended one off um, and, he, and he walked down the pitch to me and I, I, I just looked him straight in the eye and I, I don't know, I said something to him which I can't remember now, but um, it, I, I was just so fired up. And the more I did that the more that Alex Stewart and his men behind just kept on going, hey, Dino, just give it to him, give it to him. And I thought, well, you give it to me. <laughs> That's fine. I, I, the adrenaline was pumping. and uh, But, yeah, uh, again, it was a great bowling performance, a collective bowling performance from everybody um, that got us off to a, a really good start. We could have lost that first test in Edgebestown. We, If it didn't rain, I reckon we'd have probably come short there. Yeah, it, it was a rain-affected test. And then that Lord's test... Um, well, John C. Rhodes and Hansi Cronier dug you out of a hole in the first innings because you were a few wickets yeah. down. Um, Dominic Court was swinging it around corners. Yeah. And then, so you posted 360 all out, um, but then that spell where you bowl England out for 110. And obviously, uh, that evening, that Friday evening, you had them f- uh, 40 for three. You'd got the wicket of Steve James, I think. Yeah. Pollock had picked up the other two. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful fifer looking at it here being a bit of a cricket geek it's all caught Boucher bold Donald yeah everything yeah. caught behind yeah I think uh, D- Dean Headley was out soon in the morning and then Nasser Hussein swung at one yeah outside off stump and he, he nicked it to Boucher well taken beautiful catch by Mark Boucher 
Hussein will uh, be regretting playing that stroke. Hussein has edged it. Boucher takes another catch. Donald's having a good morning. England are not. It's actually quite a big edge. A little bit of away movement. But that probing around that off stump has paid off. Dean Headley has gone for two. It's 49 for five. Huge appeal, Don. Ramprakash doesn't want to go. Still doesn't want to go. Yes! Hit the glove and out. England are all out. Boucher takes a relatively simple catch. Fraser could do nothing about that stinging delivery from Donald, who takes his fifth wicket. It was a good performance. I think a great team performance in that because you did right. I mean that 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 could have turned real bad there if if Cronier and Rhodes didn't play that well. And and I think Jonty's knock there, the counter attack from him personally, was because he turned that innings on its head. Um, he just played so aggressively, um, and uh, not to mention how well he ran between wickets. But he just seemed to he was the only only batter then who could hit guys like Cork off their lens um, and uh, you know that was a seriously good con- uh, seriously good uh, a bit of batting in the context of the game and, and how that panned out that was valuable really valuable So South Africa win the Lord's Test comfortably by 10 wickets and go one up in the series. The next test at Old Trafford's a draw, which frustrates Allen as England escape nine down, hanging on in their second innings. Next up is Trent Bridge. What unfolds is one of the greatest cricketing duels ever witnessed. England need 247 to win. They're 82 for one on the fourth day, with Mike Atherton and Nasser Hussain starting to build a partnership. South Africa need to do something. I still see it now. I'm at fine leg and I, I wave to Hansi and I just said to him, I want to bowl now. Um, I need to get on here now, you know. So um, I could see this just, there was a partnership developing here. He just got Butcher out, Pollock. And uh, Hussein and uh, and, uh, and Athers uh, were in and I thought, I better get on here. And that first ball, that ball was like, I, I, it just feels so good. It just came out so well. And I felt I felt a bit sort of stiffish and... Uh, and I said, for, I said, I'm coming around, coming around the wicket. So I said to Hansi, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a crack here. I'm going to just give me the feel that I want for now and see how it goes. Um, so I'm just going to bowl two lengths, which is going to go short and full. That's it. Um, just because at the moment nothing was happening. So around the wicket then, two slips in a gully. Atherton really digging in. 27 not out. And here comes Donald, and bowls round the wicket to him now, and it's just outside the off-stone, Batherland's back and across in the crease. And Rhodes fields at cover point. Two hours, ten minutes now, this innings of Mike Atherton's. And the next delivery round the wicket, uh, fends it off, gloves it hard, and just, well, great catch by Mark Batcher. <laughs> low down to his right takes an absolute blind and I remember flying through running through but at the same time I see Athers standing and he's marking his thing and I'm thinking he's not walking and uh, and then I, as I got to the the slip cordon everyone's just gone you are what 
And I turn around and I say, he's not giving him out. He's, he's not giving him out. I, it was such a disbelief. It was just, it was so, um, it was so blatant. It was so, yeah, for everyone to see that he's just hit the absolute. As Donald runs in from that far end and bowls a ball just short. Oh, that's gloved and Boucher's claiming the catch. They think it's out. Donald's running through. Atherton's staying there. They're looking towards umpire Dunn. Who is unmoved. Now, it hit something. And Boucher took a very good catch, and they had to come forward. They're still standing there, South Africans, glaring at the umpire. They shouldn't be doing that. But we'll have a look at a replay from round the wicket. It was dug in short. Atherton tried to fend it off. What kicked off next was one of the best bits of cricket, the best bit of test cricket that I've ever been involved with. I think the the War Twins was one other um, at Sydney, the uh, second new ball uh, that, that went similar way. But I think Atherton's duel was just something amazing. Um, uh, you know, it could have gone any other way. Here comes Donald again, round the wicket, and bowls a ball which is inside edge, and that's going to run away for four. A perfect answer as far as Mike Atherton and the crowd are concerned. But a horrible one as far as Donald's concerned, and he's looking there at Mike Atherton, who simply looks straight back at him, and Donald goes stalking back to his mark. 86 for one, it was a very good ball, it was a quick ball as well and it ran away off the inside edge of Atherton's bat, just past his stumps, and away through fine leg for four. Well, if that doesn't stoke up Alan Donald, nothing will. And he's steaming at the moment. We, we had a, a, you know, everyone sees the cameras, you see the camera zoom into my mouth, and my mouth goes, come on, you know, I, I, I didn't. I don't think I, I must have said two swear words to him, and that's it. And he, he, he was saying that I, I, we spoke Afrikaans to them, which was just absolute rubbish. <laughs> but if there were lots more cameras zooming into that little circle there, and Hansi Cornier giving it to him every ball, and Daryl Cullen and getting stuck in, and he's got his hands on his hips. Atherton simply standing there as he does, and now he uh, digs in again. What's Donald going to do? He's certainly waiting a moment. He's still waiting. He's looking at the ball. Now he's going to come in and bowl it. Two slips, a gully. Down they go as Donald comes in round the wicket now and bowls to Atherton, a bouncer, which flies over his shoulder. Boucher takes it. Donald follows through. A long stare at Mike Atherton. Atherton simply stares back. The crowd joining in. Well, it's... It's a terrific contest, you have to say that. It was a good bouncer, that, a quick one. And uh, Atherton played it very well indeed. And uh, certainly uh, Alan Donald there, having a word with Atherton, who loves this situation, he simply stared back at him, didn't say a word. But you have to take your hat off. I mean, he, he showed serious courage and, 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 and composure under that pressure because he, he could have gone one way or the other. And I think the, one, the, the thing that made it the worst was then Hussein gets dropped, um, nicks it, and then Boucher goes and, and it just hits him so hard, uh, just hits him gloves hard and he pops up and, and uh, drops out and I, I, I couldn't help but just scream as loud as I could. Um, not at Mark Boucher, it was just you think you've put in so much energy and so much that, that you're trying to make things happen and it's not. Here's Donald Bowles to Hussein, who's forward. Oh, he's, he's dropped, dropped him! him. Well, Mark Boucher has gone to his right and has dropped the catch that may just 
lose this match for South Africa. We've been saying all along that he catches the ones that count, but sooner or later he was going to drop one that uh, counts, and that might just be the one. Now in comes Donald again, round the wicket and bowls to Atherton. That's short and fended away and down into the gully. Donald really is steaming here, and that was uh, stopped in that position. There's more words from Alan Donald to Mike Atherton. How frustrating was it that he just says nothing? Well, <laughs> he, and, and, and that's just good batsmanship. That's just a guy that is so composed and in his bubble. And he knew, he says it often. He said, I, can, I, I just look in their eyes. And I know they, they can stay as long as they want, but they'll have to turn back and they're going to have to try again. And that's true. It's very true. You can't stand there forever and say, tell him that he's, he's a cheat. Um, and it's not a cheat, really. It's just you know, if you don't walk, you don't walk. And that's fine. And that, that's absolutely fine. I've got no problem with that. It's just that we two men having a crack at each other that had so much pride of, of what, what is happening and the potential what could happen was a serious loss and that certainly proved to be the the knock that uh, that got them there yeah. uh, we, we were pretty much blown away the next day and it was yeah just coming to read the, the last rites really the next day how did how did you keep your cool in the situation? Well, I, t- I kept saying that you know, f- from a coaching point of view, now it, it's that composure was. I, I, I see that it, again. I, um, uh, the ball, the ball after that, he was ready to face, and I, and I was about to run in, and I took a step or two, and I came back, and I actually walked slower back, and I stood at the back of my mark, and I just took two huge breaths. Just yeah. and in that moment, I thought, right. Al, if you get if you get really angry here, which you are now, <laughs> you could then this test match could be over tonight if you get that reckless. And so let's just stay aggressive, but stay aggressive in that channel where we call the hot zone. Just keep give him absolutely nothing. Be aggressive, but just stay calm. Every single ball when you walk back, just think about it. I think that really. You know, taught me a, a great deal about, and I use that a lot now in white ball cricket composure, that composure, and, and even red, red ball cricket now. So um, I just thought uh, there's no need for me to now go and just spray it all over the show because it's, it has to count. Every ball has to count. So, so when it goes back in a length there, it's still challenging his defence, it's still challenging off stump. Um, and and I've got to make him play because the nick is it's every, every right now within the next half hour anything can happen, but it's how it's how tight and disciplined and aggressive I stay now. So that that really was a was a key was a key for me. And Polly Pollock at the other end did a great job because he just kept slamming away, he just kept giving. It was it was it was crazy. It was it was NASA one end happily sitting on his bat handle <laughs> and then it was I don't blame him <laughs> then it was Atherton at the other it was uh, me and him just going at it I almost forgot who was at the other end <laughs> it was pure theatre it's, it's still one of the greatest sort of jewels in test cricket um, even just watching it back now watching the tapes it's amazing um, but, but then after the day's play or after the test you guys just shared a beer together I mean yeah he came upstairs and uh, brought a few uh, beers up knocked on the door and uh, <laughs> sat down on the step and um, Cheers, well bowled, well battered, and he gave me his right glove. 
so there you go you, you said you know you know i was never going to walk i don't it's you know i just don't walk and i said mate i seriously um whether you walk or not you, i would you know a lot of people would have done the same thing it was a brave thing to do uh but also you know how we got through that whole onslaught was more, even more impressive because he handled it so well so so well he ducked well took a few blows mishooked one um but he was he was right there to the death you know so it was a uh, i think any young batsman wanted to learn about courage i think that was it um and he was well, he did it in Joburg yeah uh you know uh we batted for a day and a half uh, almost two days bloody hell. it was um and he's done it again against South Africa so the guy knows he's got his own game plan and he plays within that game plan and he's just a tough man he's, he's, you know when you're in a scrap with Mike, Ath- Mike Atherton you know this could take a while before you remove him Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss Plus with a US-based restoration specialist on your team You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Alan takes 33 wickets and is man of the series that summer, but still ends up on the losing side. England win the Trent Bridge Test and the final match at Headingley. It's a bitter pill to swallow for South Africa's strike bowler and leader of the pace attack, a role Alan's enjoyed since his early days, thanks to skipper Hansi Cronier. It started a long time ago. It's, um, you know, when, when we played for Free State together and he saw me as this, uh, this guy who's... Uh, yeah, I remember once... Uh, he's... He, we talked about leadership, um, and and exactly, exactly exp- you know, explained to me what he wants from me, how I want, how he wants me to operate, and um, and I made a, a very bad comment once. It was uh, it was a throwaway comment, really. We were in New Zealand, and we played on a glued pitch um, at, at uh, Eden Park, the rugby ground, and um, I got into the tea time on the fourth afternoon, and I just was on the floor and I just said you know this this pitch is very flat <laughs> this but in a, in a very sarcastic manner and he didn't speak to me for two weeks wow uh, simply because he didn't um he didn't he doesn't like that sort of thing from his leadership group um he, he didn't expect that from me and I me- when I said it immediately I went ice cold I thought oh no uh, that was stupid and well instead of me just going sorry sorry about that I, I didn't say a word uh, so <laughs> I was in these good books for two weeks but we eventually sorted it out but that's that's what he expected from these senior players that's where and, and, and that's where Bob Woolmer was the great inventor as a coach and Hansi was the great communicator um, and that's what he that was his great strength Hansi Cronier knew exactly he knew exactly what he could get out of his He's uh, he's group of people that he he works with with every day. So, um, but yeah, I mean, he he didn't say much on the field. 
than so much. You just knew. You just knew what he wanted. And, and he loved bowlers going, give me the ball. Yeah. He really enjoyed that. I, if, you, if, you, if you have a gut feel, just, just say you want a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and you just knew. He's going to ask you at some point, so let's get that ball and go. We've kind of come on naturally now to talk about Hansi Cronier. Um, obviously, in this podcast, we've we've talked about '94, that five wicket haul at Lords. '98, your your relationship with Nelson Mandela, growing up in Bloemfontein, coming to England, coming to to Warwickshire, that fantastic period you had there. One figure when I was sort of doing my research, doing my notes, that came up time and time again is Hansi Cronier. You were. A, you grew up with him you played in the backyard with him um sitting here now you talk about him as a great captain however the sad side of all that is he's he will be remembered ultimately or is remembered for the match fixing um saga which tainted his career um how did you feel when you heard about that at the time mm. uh well well, first of all, I thought it was the biggest prank ever. I was over here, and uh, South Africa were just about to play against Australia in three ODIs to see who's going to be the number one team in the world. So they played three there in Melbourne and three in South Africa and Durban. And uh, I heard that it was um, something had come up, um, and I phoned his brother immediately, and. Uh, um, I said to France, listen, uh, he was in the car with him, um, driving him to the hotel. And he said, Al, don't worry about it. It's only just a rumor, big rumor. And um, Dr. Bach actually uh, tells a great story. He said um, he received a call at 2 a.m. in the morning from Hansi saying that, um, look, Doc, um, I, I must come clean. Um, I must tell, tell you the story. So um, he, uh, at I think the next day there was a press conference that uh, he's admitted to um, taking money from bookmakers, and that's as all as much as that was said then. There was uh, there, yes, the allegations were match fixing, but also he said he only took money from bookmakers. Um, but yeah, when it came out, I was the angriest man in the world because. Um, you know, we were great, great buddies. Uh, we, we, well, he wasn't my brother, really. I mean, we, brother, the brother I never had. We grew up, you know, this high in the back garden playing rugby test matches with his dad being the referee and cricket and all sorts. So when that came out, I felt extremely let down, and, and so did so did the rest of the group um, that played under him. Um, and, oh, gee, uh, you know. Uh, the rest was really history and uh, how he was dealt with was uh, I thought in certain circumstances that's uh, Cricket South Africa or CSA as they uh, uh, United Cricket Board back in the day as they were called um, had him where they wanted him um, because um, Hansi stood up for a lot uh, for the team behind closed doors um, and <laughs> Cricket South Africa didn't quite like that sort of power but uh, you know he he you know he got a life ban and um, went to court and uh, had to defend himself and you know so um, but a long story short I think I don't think I would have ever forgiven myself if I didn't have the opportunity to speak with him uh, in Bloom so he phoned me so after twelve months 
he phoned me and said we need to talk so he flew down from Cape Town and we sat for five hours um, um, in my bar at home where we just chatted about all the stuff and 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 he absolutely 100% said to me that he never fixed a match uh, it was it was easy money um, you know it was it was greedy money so yeah. you know which was uh, uh, you know he, he just got sucked into that dark world and um, just thought it was it's, it's alright to do this sort of thing but uh, did you for, forgive him at that sort of in that five hour conversation was it kind of, was it uh, not therapeutic but was it there's a sense of I just kept asking why yeah. you know why did he have uh, answers for you? Or? He just said, um, I, you know, it was, it was easy. Yeah. It was easy to do it. And it, it was easy to take the money. Um, but he said that he never, ever fixed a match for South Africa. He did not fix a match. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you, you, your mind starts to race about other things that you might have been involved in. You think, well, oof, what about that game or that game? Um you know, but uh, you know that's only speculation back in those days. But uh, but yeah, look, um, I I was fine with that, and he explained himself. And look, there wasn't a, a dry eye in that five hours. I can tell you that much. Um, so, um, but uh, you know, yeah, he's as I said, you know, I often refer to him as my brother. I I never almost called him Hansi. I just only called him called him my brother. He was. A serious captain. He was the best I've ever played under. And he showed that in Sydney in 93, 94, when he took over from Kepler having a broken thumb. He handled a situation like he was 50 test matches in. Yeah. You know, that's how good he was. And uh, you just you just hear him speak and his calmness and his... You know, he's born, he was born to be a captain. Absolutely born. And he, he was a, also a hell of a rugby player. You know, eighth man or number six, seven. He was a big bloke, and uh, um, he was one of those guys that you eat during a test. And if we had, if we had uh, bowled a day before, or, or had a great batting day, and he starts putting spikes on after the day's play, you know where that's going. That's going out there to do fitness. You know, and he didn't have to ask people; they just followed him. And that—that's how powerful he was. You know, that's how. Um, impactful he was in terms of all right he's going to do some shuttles anyone keen <laughs> he didn't even ask that so the whole team was oh okay spikes on here we go <laughs> and he'll just say right who's going to call the number 40 40 it is and off you go um you should have said a lower number <laughs> <laughs> someone always had to shout 40 because 20 was never going to make the cut right <laughs> And it's it's actually it's 16 years ago um, this year that Hansi Cronier uh, tragically passed away in that um, plane crash. Just just to finish on, I guess you still miss him. Uh, oh yeah, so much. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, there's not many days that we go without. You know, if, if there's uh, because I'm very close friends. Obviously, um, I've known his sister for many years, and then his brother lives not far from us, and uh, and and in Cape Town so uh, I, I see them a lot so you know his dad is not so well um, he's, he's been ill for a long time and uh, so he's not going too well there um, but yeah I mean he's he, he'll always be missed and uh, I think a lot of people 
a lot of South Africans now, the odd one would come out and say a stupid comment. Uh, but a lot of people still have that great admiration for what he did. Um, he was that he was that um, impactful. He um, he's he always whatever he said came over so strongly and powerfully. Um, you know, so yeah, he he will be forever forever missed. Absolutely. I was just looking at some of the stats quickly and except for Dennis Lilly who played 70 test matches he took 355 wickets um you took um 330 in 72 tests uh, basically behind Dennis Lilly on that fewer amount of tests you're the mm. second top wicket taker everyone else who's taken more test wickets than you has played at least 81 test matches or more um, you truly are one of the great fast bowlers um, did the little boy in Bloemfontein know that? <laughs> no no I, I, I and that's that's, a quick, that's actually a very good question because um, I, I've been asked that a lot did, did you know that you are going to become this kind of and, I, and the answer is no I never dreamt about it. I, I just, I was just, um, thank goodness there wasn't too many distractions. And I'm, I'm not saying living in bloom. I'm, I'm just saying there were genuinely not too many things in in my cricket career that distracted me from focusing on what I need to do. Do you mean things like booze, women, drugs, all that kind of uh, stuff? Or? <laughs> no, <laughs> Because not, there are those trappings along yeah, the way. Yeah, they, they, they are, they are. But I think the, the, the dist- distraction, when I, what I'm talking about, was really... Uh, the overuse of goal, goal setting um, that that was for me was the the big thing and um, I spoke to a guy called Alan Jones in Australia way back and he we, we spoke about leadership and he that is the best advice he could have ever given me was um, when he was working with a Wallaby team at that at that point um, and he said to me it was Kepler's big friend and he said to me, you should set... He asked me about my goal setting. And I said, well, well, this year... And he said, okay, stop there. Stop right there. He said, have you ever thought about waking up in the morning and saying, have you ever planned your day? I said, uh, not really. He said, well, you should start looking into that maybe. You know, start looking into how you want to structure your practice today. What do you want out of your practice today? So because he said... Leaders, he said, leaders are born on the training ground, not 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 what they do out there in competition. That will generally take care of itself. And you'll, when your career is over, we'll see people will say, "Wow, he was a great leader." But he said that stuff happens out there on the training ground, and that's what I coach today. <laughs> that's just, it's, it's so true. It's so so true. And I, I I'm, and that's where I, the distractions that I'm talking about is. The goal setting, the goal setting, the goal setting, and that for me was was so good. It was I kept it tight, compact. It's about Alan Donald. What are you about today? How are you going to change? How can you how can you impact the day today with a ball? It's almost yeah. like a kind of form of mindfulness. It's just being in that moment. Correct. Did you do? I mean, to use that analogy, talking to you now, it's almost like. An actor, you practice your lines and then you go on the stage and then you deliver. Is was that yeah. how you played your cricket? Correct, just like that, just like that. But for me, was uh, and and Hans, uh, 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 the great Eddie Barlow was our coach in in the, in the early nineties, and he asked me this question one day, and I'm, I'm really bowling well, I'm bowling quickly, 
and I rocked up there and I'm bowling off like 10 paces and he stopped me right in my tracks and he said what are you doing I said I'm just having a little bowl he said no what are you doing I'm not quite sure where he's going with this but (laughs) I said "Um, I'm not and I genuinely asked him I said I'm not sure he said oh okay Um, so you're bowling at 140 odd do you understand why that's happening and I quit immediately just the lights went on and and that's where he demanded he was the first coach that I played under that demanded practicing at high intensity not for too long but at high intensity and understanding when you're in good form why it's happening Um, so another great lesson in life that sort of you know kicked me hard and 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 that's exactly what I'm I'm sort of uh, passing on today and I think that and, and he called it he he said it his first thing he wrote was the training ground culture and um, I, I loved it I think it was and, and that's where Cronier was captain of Free State just took that on board and um, and that's how we trained we trained it was hostile it was it wasn't a nice place to come it's, you know if you're a batsman walking away from there it was Wow, that was tough. And do you still turn your arm over ever today? Have you played no. any club cricket? No, <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm genuinely, genuinely sore. Uh, I've got a right knee, two ankles that are not good. Um, so I, I throw a lot with the sidearm and and slings, and that's me. But uh, no, I, it's it's genuinely painful. That uh, I'd st- rather stay away from that. <laughs> well, thank goodness for any club cricketers that would turn up on a Saturday <laughs> and see Alan Donald uh, marking out his uh, run. Um, well, well, thank you so much for your time today and coming on the Lord's Cricket Podcast. Um, it's been entertaining. It was a pleasure to watch you. You were a great player and a great entertainer. So thank you for thank that. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers, Will. Well, you've been listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with the stories from the home of cricket and the people that made them. That was Alan Donald on a couple of special performances here at Lord's and also some amazing memories from a phenomenal career and with some emotional moments too. What an absolute pleasure that was to sit down with Alan Donald. He's someone you don't really hear much from these days in the media uh, because he tends to do a lot of coaching. He's currently at Kent. Um, It was just amazing really to catch up with a childhood hero of mine and be in a room with him and him to tell that Donald v Atherton duel all over again and live it like it was yesterday. He still, you could see um, in his face and I hope you can hear just... Even now, he's angry that Donald didn't go off the pitch or wasn't given out. He doesn't blame him for not walking, but uh, yeah, it was out and it it annoys him. Um, So I really do hope you enjoyed that podcast. Um, Please do give the show a rating. It helps to get the podcast out there. Tell people about the podcast. If you've got friends who are cricket fans, then let them know it's available. Uh, We've got three more in this series to come. Also, subscribe to the podcast. So hopefully, once this series is done, we'll be making a fresh one. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Home of Cricket. Or follow me personally. I'm at WillRow2. You can also contact the show by email on podcast at mcc.org.uk. Also, a massive thanks to the BBC, Sky Cricket and ECB for the commentary clips there. That was um, really special, listening back to uh, Jonathan Agnew 
describing that duel with uh, Michael Atherton. It really is um, one of the most special moments in all sport, I think. I know I've sort of banged on about it, but it really was uh, electrifying. It was pure theatre. It was brilliant. Right, next week's episode is with Graham Onions. His Lord's story is one of childhood dreams. A test fiver on debut here in the summer of 2009. He then also goes on to be part of England's Ashes winning summer that year in 09. Uh, But Onion's career doesn't live up to the promise that it showed back then. Uh, For me, he's probably the most unlucky England cricketer of his generation, uh, only playing nine test matches. I discuss all that plus plenty more in an honest and frank conversation, actually, uh, with a player affectionately known as Bunny Onions. Uh, We caught up recently. He's now plying his trade at Lancashire, still going strong um, and still a Durham man through and through. So that's next week's Lord Cricket Podcast, which is out next Monday with Graham Onions. Once again, thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Acast.com